This is My Rain Gauge is Busted, a podcast produced by Agriculture Victoria. I'm Ethan Berry, and here we talk about all things climate and farming. In this episode, we're going to talk about sea surface temperatures and more specifically how the data is collected to create sea surface temperature maps. Now, before you click away, I want to touch on how important that is because it might not sound very relevant and you might be thinking, why dedicate a whole episode to sea surface temperature data? But as Gemma explains, without sea surface temperature being checked all over the world by boats and buoys and even a few fast swimmers, seasonal weather forecasting would be a whole lot more difficult. So this information is incredibly useful for researchers and farmers alike and is the basis that seasonal forecasting and modelling comes from. I once heard someone ask that exact question. Why would we be interested in sea surface temperature? The answer was simply put, because we're surrounded by ocean. What is happening in the ocean greatly affects what happens on land. We are particularly interested from an ocean temperature perspective of the areas that are 24 degrees Celsius or higher. Because at this temperature and above, there are significant amounts of evaporation. That evaporation accounts for a vast portion of the rain that falls on land. When the temperature gets to 26 and a half degrees Celsius and higher, formation of cyclones can occur. While there are regions of the world's oceans that we are more interested in, for example, the Pacific and Indian Ocean, technology like buoys, both floating and fixed, Ships and Argo floats are found almost everywhere and all have their own unique role. We recently had the opportunity to talk to Helen Beggs from the Bureau of Meteorology who, in her own words, is the Southern Hemisphere expert in satellite sea surface temperature and is very passionate about what she does. Well, I started at the Bureau in 2003. Prior to that, I was an oceanographer in Hobart at CSIRO. I went to sea a lot. I'd wintered twice in Antarctica and then I did a PhD about the Antarctic sea ice zone and carbon air sea gas exchange over the Antarctic ice zone. And then we moved to Melbourne and I was in IT for a couple of years and I got a job at the Bureau and I've been there ever since. Sea surface temperature commonly referred to as SST, has been collected for a long time. As we became more and more interested in how currents, temperature and wind affect fishing, sailing and of course the weather. They were doing it on various uh, research expeditions, I guess. I mean, Darwin probably collected it. But it wasn't until 1853 that there was a meeting in uh, Belgium where internationally uh, the conference decided that they were going to try to accurately collect SST data from ships. And um, they started off with wooden um, buckets that they normally use on ships, but they were rather large and they discovered that if they tried to use them from steamships, they might lose a crew member. So um, it was rather dangerous <laughs> with such a large bucket. So once they started to use steamships, which was around 1850s to 1920s, uh, they decided to use a canvas bucket, which was rather smaller and they could hold on to it on the, with the speeds that the ships went at. After the 1920s, they used the canvas buckets until they were replaced by rubber insulated buckets in 1950s and 60s. 
And in fact, for safety reasons, certainly, especially during World War II, they replaced the bucket readings. They started to replace them with the um, engine intakes because they didn't have to go on deck with a light and get shot at. So they wanted to use a thermometer at the water intake inside the ship. So what they've had to do, the scientists um, who want to look at the climate record of SST, they've had to actually adjust the engine intake temperature data because it's too warm and the buckets are at a more consistent depth as well because they're in the top metre or something of the ocean. They are cooler than the engine intake. As the method of measuring the water temperature has changed over the years, uh, the scientists have had to account for that because they know that as you change the method, there may be biases. But certainly in more recent years, we have far more accurate sensors, of course. While ship data is only really collected from the shipping and travel routes around the world, ships have remained an integral part of sea surface temperature data collection. Now, though, they've got a bit more high-tech equipment on board. In 2008, through the um, IMOS project, I started to instrument ships around Australia with hull contact temperature sensors, um, and they are more accurate than the engine sensors because they're on the actual hull. So as long as it's a metal hull, it equilibrates really quickly to the temperature of the water outside. And if you use a good contact, then you can actually measure the temperature pretty well. And I discovered that um, the accuracy is equivalent to drifting buoys, which is really great. So we now have uh, quite a few of those around Australia. The ships that send back data from, say, uh, cargo ships and ocean liners, ferries, that sort of thing, they send it back every six hours if it's got to be manually measured and transmitted. However, we also, on uh, some of those ships such as the Spirit of Tasmania 2, for example, across Bass Strait, the Bureau has installed an automatic uh, weather station on board, much like the ones that are on some farms and elsewhere around Australia, which are unmanned, which don't have to be touched by the crew on board the ship, which is good, um, and they send back data every hour, Uh, and that is processed at the Bureau and then it's uploaded onto the GTS, so it's shared globally. And that's really important. And those observations are generally more accurate because they aren't... uh, Someone doesn't have to read the instruments manually. It's automatic and everything. What is interesting is that the crew on the ships, they provide it unpaid. They do it as just altruistic uh, reasons, but they obtain the weather uh, forecasts, of course, on the ships, and they provide data just as uh, farmers do too. I mean, there are lots of volunteer observers on farms, just as there are on ships who have to take the readings every six hours and transmit them via a radio. Another important source of data are the science vessels, such as RV Investigator 
and or Australis prior to it being sold and others like that and uh, vessels that are up in the tropics that study the Great Barrier Reef, they send back data as well and we process the data and it's uploaded and shared. So those are sort of the two types of ships really, the commercial vessels which can be quite small ferries up to very large bulk carriers and also the science vessels which can range in size. The Global Telecommunication System, the GTS, is the global network that allows countries to share meteorological data and it is vital for Australian scientists and modellers. As Helen explains, this is the main way they receive satellite SST data. We rely on international satellite data for all our weather models and if we didn't have that satellite data, we would not be able to predict the weather, basically. Um, and, and Australia owns and operates no weather satellite, unfortunately. So we are totally dependent on the uh, US, the Japanese, the Chinese and uh, ESA in Europe as well. It wasn't till IMOS started in 2007 that we started to share ocean data freely around Australia. Because prior to that, uh, people would just collect their own data on cruises, which were very expensive, and they would hold on to it uh, for two years. So there was an embargo, in fact, on it being available publicly for one to two years, which was rather frustrating. And certainly if you had a boy, say a mooring, you kept hold of that data. It didn't get shared. And it's very expensive to collect that data. So so scientists didn't want to share it. It is not cheap to have, uh, like, a research cruise will cost you up to $50,000 a day, and that's just to pay for the vessel, uh, let alone actually have instruments on board and pay for the technical staff that you have to have on board and the scientists, who are really the cheap bit, but um, <laughs> you've got to pay them and the crew. Not all, but an awful lot of Australian ocean data from various agencies such as CSIRO and the Bureau Ames up in Queensland and uh, the Navy is now uh, provided. Um, there's a portal that scientists and students and the public can go to to download ocean data. And it's all funded by IMOS, which is funded by INCRIS, <laughs> which is the Australian federal government. <laughs> Some of the important technology and infrastructure used to collect sea surface temperature data includes buoys. These can be either moored or drifting, and moored ones are attached to the bottom of the ocean, while drifting ones float along the surface and move around the ocean. Helen explained a bit about the look and the ability of a moored buoy. It's a very large buoy with a very long chain to tether it to the bottom of the ocean. So it may be several kilometres long if it's in the deep ocean. It's uh, probably sort of roundish, a couple of metres perhaps. I'm not sure of the exact size, but they are quite large. And on these buoys, they have instruments that are weather sort of um, instruments. It's basically a weather station on a buoy, uh, but underneath the water they have temperature, um, they might have current sensors, 
pressure sensors, of course, and they measure the salinity as well. So, and some of them measure other things like the chlorophyll, you know, fluorescence or something, but they have all sorts of instruments on them. So they're quite large and extremely expensive. And the Bureau of Meteorology um, has actually deployed for many years in the Southern Ocean, southwest of Tasmania, uh, the same sort of buoy. So it's called a, a flux buoy. It measures air-sea flux, uh, accurate weather data, as well as ocean data. So I happen to know they are extremely expensive. And to have an array of them costs millions of dollars a year and unfortunately because of the expense in recent years the number of them has decreased because of the cost. Some of the very first moorings started in 1980 and they were probably the most important um, ocean observations long-term that we have, well, apart from ships going back so far. But they started in 1980, so they don't go back as far, but they were calibrated sensors on moorings that measured all types of variables. You know, it wasn't just the temperature. So the tower array started in 1987 and that is the best way that we have to monitor consistently and accurately what ocean temperatures have been doing and they are particularly important for the validation of the satellite SST data too because they are stable, they are calibrated and accurate and they stay in one place because they're moored, whereas the drifting buoys are really helpful. But, of course, by definition, they drift. And once they are calibrated, you cannot go back and calibrate them again and check them, whereas a mooring, ships go to them every year to, to maintain them and to swap over the sensors and to calibrate them. So um, they are particularly important. And there are other mooring arrays now that started later in the Atlantic and Indian Oceans, but they started with the Pacific specifically because they realised that El Nino was so important. Since the late uh, 1990s, um, they started to deploy Argo profiling floats, which are a little bit like a you know a pink torpedo or something they go up and down um through the water and they are also extremely important for um ocean models and as input in two seasonal prediction models and they have accurate sensors on board to measure the temperature and the salinity and pressure and they are probably the most important input now into ocean models because they spend uh, most of their time underneath the water, they're not affected by the currents as much, unlike the drifting buoys that drift with the currents. So once you deploy them in one uh, region of the ocean, they pretty well stay in that region without drifting away too much. So we now have a very good array that's totally global of um, Argo floats, they're called. So um, there are many different types of platforms which have emerged over recent years. So we are now in a much better space than we were in the 1980s, say, where we had only very few drifting buoys, mainly ships, a few drifting buoys, and no mooring, uh, a very few moorings, whereas now we have much, much more data.
and over the years they have improved in that they are they have more uh, sensors on each float so they can measure bio geochemical data as well now uh, some of them are uh, not all so they have a range of applications and they are the darling of ocean modelers like they just love them they are so important to them but they're not the only source of temperature and salinity data at depth there are other instruments that are put on seals, uh, sea lions and turtles. So uh, we actually get a free ride, as it were, from uh, seals. And the data uh, comes into uh, the Bureau and it's placed on the GTS so that it's available to models around the world too. The biggest game changer for collecting sea surface temperature data has definitely been the use of satellite technology. But that doesn't mean that in-situ equipment, like the boys, are not also very important. So it started off in 1964, which sounds like a long time ago. It was before we landed on the moon. So, you know, it was back in the very early days when people started to put satellites up in space. Uh, One of the very first satellites, which was the Nimbus 1 satellite launched by NASA in 1964, Uh, That had something called an HRIR sensor on board, an infrared uh, radiometer, which could measure, I think, one frequency, so only one wavelength, but it could measure the brightness temperature of the ocean. And they were flabbergasted. They were absolutely amazed when they saw the first pictures of the ocean and they went, wow, it's all swirly bits like this is amazing. We didn't know it had swirly bits in the ocean. We didn't know that there were eddies. It was the first time that they'd seen an eddy and they didn't realise that that's what was in the ocean, Um, which seems amazing to me that they didn't realise from their ship observations that the ocean actually behaved like that. But So that was the first image from space of ocean temperature. And, of course, it became a lot more accurate Um, after that because they had to add more wavelengths so they could measure it more accurately. And it wasn't till 1981 when they put the advanced, uh, very high-resolution radiometer, um, AVHRR, on to NOAA's uh, polar-orbiting environmental uh, satellites, uh, which started in 1981 uh, with NOAA-6 satellite, that they could measure pretty accurately SST from space. And in fact, scientists still use the data starting in 1981, which is why I measure it, because so much of our climate data record of SST starts with that satellite. So it was incredibly important. And of course, it's been going ever since. So um, the calibration back in the 1980s left a bit to be desired. You know, technology has come a long way since then. But what is also cool is that just in the last few years, my colleagues in the UK have been able to go back to the raw data from those early NOAA satellites and recalibrate it right from raw counts to SST, and they now have more accurate data from uh, 1980s. But the big, big challenge also is that back in the 80s, we had so few in-situ SST observations, so we only had very few drifting buoys, very few moorings, and 
the ships, but the ships had engine intake sensors. They weren't so accurate. So it's much more difficult to ground truth that data. Uh, these days, it's so much easier because we have a whole lot more accurate in situ SST data. And also the sensors on the satellites are much better calibrated. And um, I got involved with uh, satellite SST when I started at the Bureau in 2003. And ever since, I've been trying to improve the satellite SST products that Australia produces, basically. So, um, so these days, yes, we've come a long way since 1981. What new technology is coming forward to continue the collection of temperature data? IMOS is funding uh, testing of new technologies because we've realised that, yes, we do need to move with the times. So there are new types of drifting buoys like wave buoys that are being tested. Um, it's very important to measure waves with buoys on the ocean, of course. Um, also, something that's come along in just the last few years uh, is something called sail drone, which, as the name implies, it is a little sailing boat that is controlled remotely by pilots ashore and they program it just as they would program a glider is pre-programmed to go along a set path but it's also uh, monitored and it can be its route can be changed if needed then a sail drone can also be guided and they have a number of instruments on board so it sails with the wind that it can measure uh, ocean temperature as well as meteorological data and and other types of ocean data we thank Helen for her time and greatly appreciate her willingness to share the vast knowledge she has about the collection and use of sea surface temperature data. Next time you see a sea surface temperature map in the fast break or very fast break, think about all of those boys collecting data. O-S-O-I-N-S-S-T's And what on earth is an IOD? Can someone please explain to me? Stay up to date, get the break. We hope that this episode has helped to shine a light on how important sea surface temperature data collection is and how it was quite difficult to collect it in the early days. You can find more helpful links in the show notes and we'll also leave an example of a sea surface temperature map if you're interested. And you can get in contact with us at the.break at agriculture.vic.gov.au. These terms before about S-O-I and S-S-T's And what on earth is an I-O-D Can someone please explain to me Stay up to date and get the break or keep your eyes out for Enso. Will it rain then? If so, when so? The farmers need you to be specific. What's happening out in the Pacific? Will westerly wind bursts blow away? All our hopes of that rainy day. And will this year bring an El Nino? Come on, tell us, Dale. Because we have to know about SORs and SSDs. Thank you for listening to My Rain Gauge is Busted. For more episodes in this series, find us and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.
We would love to hear your feedback, so please leave a comment or rating and share this series with your friends and family. All information is accurate at the time of release. Contact Agriculture Victoria or your consultant before making any changes on farm. This podcast was developed by Agriculture Victoria.